0: We are starting a brand new series on the Minor Prophets. We'll be spending the next 12 weeks looking at our 12 Minor Prophets. And, and uh, I just wanna mention a few things up front about the Minor Prophets as way of introduction for our series this summer. And the first uh, question maybe when you hear the phrase Minor Prophets is why are they the Minor Prophets? Why are there Major Prophets? And why are there Minor Prophets? Are the Minor Prophets less important than the Major Prophets? And the answer is no. The only reason why they're called the minor prophets is because their books are shorter. And so there's 12 of them. And these 12 men, they ministered over a period of time of about 400 years in a really difficult time in the history of Israel. Now, Israel, of course, had become a kingdom and had a king named Saul, and then after Saul, there was David, and after David, there was Solomon. At the end of Solomon's reign, the nation of Israel split into the northern tribes and the southern tribes, and 10 tribes went to the north, and two tribes went to the south, and they split really over the issue of taxes. I guess taxes was an issue then, taxes is an issue now, some things never change, but uh, they split, and so Judah and Benjamin went to the south, and they were called Judah, the tribes of Judah, and then the other 10 tribes went up, and became Israel. And this all happened. These minor prophets all began to speak to Israel and Judah during uh, really a, a very um, a lot of upheaval, a lot of political, social, religious upheaval in the history of Israel. Israel, the northern tribes, in their entirety of their existence, they had no godly kings. Every king was ungodly. Judah had a few godly kings, but not very many. And all of the minor prophets really ministered in one of three different time periods, either pre-exile during the exile, or post-exile. So there's some prophets, like the one we're gonna look at this morning, that most of his ministry was before Israel was taken into captivity by Assyria, or before Judah was taken into captivity about 140 years later by Babylon. And so there's the pre-exile, the exile, and the post-exile. And the main message of the minor prophets really was a threefold message. Number one, it was a call for repentance, because the people of Israel had turned their back on God And we're falling into idolatry. So a call for repentance. Number two, it was a warning of judgment when they did not repent. And then number three, it was a message of hope when the judgment came. So the warning, the judgment, the hope. And we're going to start this morning at the book of Hosea. And I have this video I want to show you. It's actually about an eight to nine minute long video, but we're just going to watch the first couple minutes of it. I think it gives us a great starting place to understand the book and the person of Hosea. So let's watch this together. I love that last phrase, God's covenant love and mercy are more powerful than Israel's sin. That really is the summary of, in many ways, the scriptures, but certainly the book of Hosea. And what I want you to hear this morning, and maybe the Holy Spirit will help this truth find a home in your heart, is this, that God's love is more powerful than your sin. God's love and mercy, his compassion, is more powerful than anything you've ever done wrong, any mistake you've ever made, any sin you find yourself struggling with even this morning. God's love is more powerful than that. But what does that mean? And, and we're gonna look in the book of Hosea to try to answer the question, what does this all mean? And there's three things we're gonna learn together today from the first three chapters of Hosea. And the first thing we're gonna learn is this. We're gonna learn about what sin means to God. What does sin mean to God? Secondly, we're gonna learn What does sin mean for us? And then lastly, we're going to learn, What does Jesus mean for us? So what does sin mean to God? What does sin mean for us? What does Jesus mean for us? Let's look at Hosea chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. I'm reading to you from the NLT translation. This is probably the most jarring introduction to any book of the Bible. It says this, The Lord gave this message to Hosea, son of Beri, during the years when Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah were kings of Judah. Those are the southern tribes. And Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, was king of Israel. There were multiple kings of Israel that Hosea served under, but he only lists Jeroboam for some reason. Verse 2, when the Lord first began speaking to Israel through Hosea, he said to him, go and marry a prostitute so that some of her children will be conceived in prostitution. This will illustrate, this will illustrate how Israel has acted like a prostitute by turning against the Lord and worshiping other gods. This is a pretty startling beginning, right? God comes to Hosea, Hosea's like, I'll be your man, I'll be your prophet, I'll speak for you, and God comes to Hosea and say, go marry a prostitute. Now, Maybe you caught it in the video, but most biblical scholars don't actually think that Hosea like walked into a brothel and walked up to a woman and said, you're going to be my wife. Most biblical scholars actually believe that Hosea and Gomer's marriage started fine, but then she went into adultery and then she went into prostitution. And why this prophetic act? Why this metaphor of this marriage that's been devastated by adultery? It's because this is a metaphor of how God has been treated by Israel. And it's intended to drive home to the listeners, here's what sin means to God. See, if you go back to Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chose, or God chooses a man named Abram through whom he wants to have a people, through whom he wants to have a nation, the nation of Israel. And many times throughout the history of Israel, God comes and he has, co- he has covenants with his people and he affirms and he reaffirms his choosing of them. Now why did God choose Israel? Because they were stronger, smarter, more popular than all the other nations. No, God chose Israel because he's sovereign and he gets to choose. God chose them. And think of all the things that God did for the people of Israel before this story here with Hosea. God chose them. He delivered them out of Egyptian slavery. He brought them through the wilderness. He protected them. He provided them with the law. He provided them with a leader. He provided with them for food and for sustenance and for protection. He kept his promise to them. He led them into the promised land. And now they're in the promised land, the land that they were promised. And what we find is, is that they're turning to other gods. This is covenantal unfaithfulness. And that's why this metaphor of adultery is so powerful in this story. Because when people get married, they, 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 have a, they make a covenant with each other. I will love you and I'll be faithful to you for the remainder of my days. And this story of Hosea and Gomer drives home what sin means to God. The heartbreak of broken promises and the heartbreak of betrayed trust. Now, you and I, we tend to minimize our sin. We tend to say things like, it's not a big deal, everybody else is doing it, nobody's getting hurt, what does it really matter? Or we trivialize our sin by kind of saying, ah, it's just our culture, it's just kind of the world that we're in today, come on, keep up with the times. Or we justify our sin by explaining our motivations and why we do things. Recently, my da- one of my daughters, I have three little girls, 11, 8, and 5. My 8-year-old was wearing a new t-shirt I hadn't seen before. It was a hand-me-down from her cousin and had a picture of Darth Vader on it. And it said, the dark side made me do it. (laughs) I was like, I don't like that shirt. (laughs) But sometimes we're like that. You know, we we come up with, we're really good at excusing our sin. We're really good at holding everybody else accountable for theirs. But we're really good at excusing ours. And we tend to think of sin in terms of like grounds for disappointment. Yeah, I know this was disappointing to you, God. I know this wasn't really what I should have done. I'm sure you're probably disappointed. But the story of Hosea and Gomer drives home a very important point for us. When God looks at sin, he doesn't see it as grounds for disappointment. He sees it as grounds for divorce. It's very serious. See, this is covenantal unfaithfulness. You know, when you get married to someone, you know this, right, those of you that are married, and if you're not married, listen, because this is coming your way, there's plenty of disappointment. There is plenty of disappointment in your marriage, not in mine, because I married a perfect woman and she married a perfect man, I'm kidding, but there's plenty of grounds for disappointment. The first morning when you wake up, you're like, this person is not perfect, they're not who I thought they were, their breath stinks in the morning, right? They they wear their socks to bed, they eat their eggs this way, like whatever it is, like it's like something about him is terribly disappointing and there's lots of disappointment in marriage, but that's different than grounds for divorce, Agreed? Very different. And God doesn't look at our sin like, oh, I'm a little bit disappointed. God looks at our sin as it's covenantal unfaithfulness. It's a breaking of a relationship with him. See, we think of sin in terms of like sin is breaking God's rules. But sin is, Hosea and Gomer teaches this truth very powerfully. Sin is not breaking God's rules. Sin is breaking God's heart. It's not breaking his rules. It's breaking his heart. Every now and then I've been known to drive a little fast, or uh, actually, my real problem is stop signs. For some reason, I don't know what a complete stop is. Somebody, somebody after the first service taught me a little, a little trick. To like, when you come to a stop, count one 1,000, two 1,000, three 1,000. And I was like, I'm going to get honked at Like if I count to three by the person behind me. But, I, but a couple times I've gotten tickets for just kind of not coming to a complete stop at a stop sign. Never has a police officer come to my window bawling and crying and saying, you broke my heart. <laughs> You've broken my heart and you've broken our friendship and you've broken our relationship and how can I ever trust you again and how can I, why? Because he's just enforcing rules. And sometimes when we think about God and his view on sin, we think God's just up there enforcing rules. Like he's just kind of slapping us on the wrist when we mess up because that's kind of his, that's in his job description. That's how he has to do it. And So when we break the rules, God kind of swoops in like a police officer and hands us a ticket and says, you broke the rules. Now here's the price that you have to pay. But this story makes it very clear. God doesn't look at sin like we broke rules. God looks at sin like we broke a relationship, like we broke his heart. And if this is true, by the way, it means that the solution does not simply get better at keeping the rules or say sorry for breaking the rules. The only solution for breaking someone's heart is a restored relationship. So what does sin mean to God? It means broken promises, it means broken trust, it means a broken relationship, and it means a broken heart. Second point this morning, what does sin mean for us? In Hosea chapter 2, they bring the indictment against Gomer for the life that she's lived. She's run out on Hosea. She's run out on her family. She's run after other men. She's sold herself into prostitution. And in beginning in verse 6, we see this kind of metaphor of, of Hosea and Gomer, but also God speaking about his people. Let's look at what it says in Hosea 2 verse 6. It says, For this reason I will fence her in with thorn bushes, I will block her path with a wall to make her lose her way. See, she's run away. Verse seven, when she runs after her lovers, she won't be able to catch them. She will search for them, but not find them. And then she will think, oh, I might as well return to my husband for I was better off with him than I am now. It's kind of reminiscent of the Luke 15, the lost son, right? Verse eight, she doesn't realize it was I. It was I who gave her everything she has. The grain, the new wine, the olive oil. I even gave her silver and gold. But she gave all my gifts to Baal. She took everything I gave her and she gave it to her other lover. Here's what God is basically saying. I funded her adultery. I made it possible for her to sin against me. Verse 13, I will punish her for all those times when she burned incense to her images of Baal, when she put on her earrings and jewels and went out to look for her lovers, but forgot all about me. What a sad picture. What does sin mean for us? The first thing it means is this: we're divided in our affections. Our hearts are divided. We love too many things. We love lesser things as much as we love God. Next Saturday, I'm doing a wedding for my sister-in-law. I think it's next Saturday, and um, and uh, I've done a lot of I've officiated a lot of different weddings. And one of my favorite parts of the wedding ceremony is the vows. I love the vows. And I love it. I love the traditional vows, but also sometimes couples say, we've written our own vows. And that's always very special too. And I love listening when people write their own vows because it's very personal. And, but all vows basically at the end of the day sort of say the same thing. They say something like this. I love you. I love you with all of my heart. And I commit myself to always love you and always be faithful to you. That's what the vows base. I've never been at a wedding where the, the groom stands in front of the bride and says, out of all the women in the world, for the rest of my life, I will love you with 51% of my heart. More of my heart will go to you than any other woman, I promise you. You will get 51% of my heart. You know how short that wedding ceremony would be? <laughs> and as she's stomping away angrily and probably in tears, he would say, what? Well, she's unreasonable. I'm, isn't that, I'm giving her most of my heart. 51%, that's a lot. That's, that's, that's a majority stakeholder. Like, that's what she gets. But our hearts aren't won and moved by that. God's not looking for 51% of our hearts. He's not looking for Sunday morning percentage of our hearts. He's not looking for even 95% of our hearts. God's looking for all of our hearts. And the Israelites, what they were doing, so this this was an agrarian society, which meant they grew crops and they depended upon the harvest to live. And they're in a climate that wasn't exactly the most friendly to, 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 to crops. And so there was a very small strategic window in which they needed to harvest so that they could survive. And when the harvest didn't look very good, what they would do is they would begin to look to other gods. Now, the god that you heard of in this story, Baal, Baal was a foreign god. He was a false god. But what's interesting is that he was the god of the harvest. He was the god of the weather. He was also the god of fertility. And so here's what would happen. Israelite would look at the fields and go, oh, boy, I don't see a lot of crops. I better go pray but this time I'm going to hedge my bets. I'm going to pray to Yahweh because he's my God, but I'm also going to pray to Baal. I'm going to pray to both. And we learned something about idolatry and the nature of sin. It's almost never a false God replacing the true God. It's always a false God in addition to the true God. So it's never Jesus, it's never, it's never something in place of Jesus, it's always something added on to Jesus. Jesus plus something, like Jesus isn't quite enough, like yes, I trust Jesus, but I also like, when life gets really tough, I also like to place some of my trust over here. I like to hedge my bets, I like to, yes, I know that Jesus can get me through this, but, but I also like to really be in control of the situation, so this is what I'm going to do. Yes, I know that God can, can heal this relationship, but I'm going to also take control of this as best as I can. And so we have them adding things. Jesus plus power, plus control, plus respect, plus wealth. Jesus plus health. Yes, I know Jesus is enough, but what I really need is people to respect me. And so I'm gonna do whatever it takes to get people to respect me. Yes, he's enough, but money's really great too. And so I'm gonna put some of my heart over here. And the evidence of the division of her affection, by the way, in verse eight, was that she didn't realize that everything she had came from God. The grain, the new wine, the olive oil. He says, I even gave her silver and gold, but she gave all of my gifts to Baal. This is like me giving my girls a gift card on their birthday to Dick's Sporting Goods, and they go over there and they buy a Boston Red Sox jersey. I mean, that's what it would feel like. That sort of deep, deep betrayal. As they come into my house wearing that sort of stuff, I would be like, I funded that. Like, I paid for that. And that's what God is saying here. And Hosea's going, Hosea's going, I gave her everything that she used to win her lovers. She took my stuff to cheat on me. She took my stuff to be unfaithful to me. And what we learn here about sin is this, that sin is taking the blessings of God and using those blessings to worship something else. Taking the very things that God has opened up his hand graciously and given to us and saying, thank you, God, I'll take that, I take that. thank you very much, and now I'm going to go use this to worship something or someone else. Can I give you some examples? God blesses people with talent and abilities. Many people use their talent and abilities to worship the God of achievement. God gives us the gift of leadership, but there are a lot of leaders who use the gift of leadership, the blessing of leadership, to worship the God of power and the God of control. God blesses us with opportunities, but people use opportunities to worship the God of status and self-importance. God blesses us with relationships, but there's so many people out there who use relationships to worship the God of approval. God blesses us with finances, and people use finances to worship the God of significance or the God of security. God blesses us with technology. God uses, and we use that gift of technology to worship the gods of self-expression and self-promotion. Why? Because what sin means for us is it means our hearts are divided. It doesn't fully belong to God. The second thing that sin means for us is that we're chasing the very thing that enslaves us. We're running after the very thing that ruins us. This is the story really of of humankind. We run after things that we can't quite have and we look in places for things where it can't be found there. So why do we chase after things? Why does every single human being chase after certain things? Because we're sure, we're convinced that out there somewhere, there's something out there that will bring us what our hearts need the most, which is value and worth and the feeling that I matter and I'm worth the space that I take up. And so every single person is living for something, chasing after something, but whatever you chase after actually controls you and owns you. And you can hear it in our stories, in our songs. If you listen to the radio, and you listen to some of the songs that are out there in the lyrics, people are all searching and hoping that there's something better for them. There's a British songwriter named Reese Lewis. One of his songs popped up on an Apple playlist I was listening to the other day. And in this, this chorus jumped out at me. He sang, he sang these words. Because we're all reaching for something. We're all craving change, hoping that tomorrow, that tomorrow is better than today. We're all searching for some way trying to find a way, hoping that tomorrow, that tomorrow is better than today. That's what keeps many people going through life. Maybe tomorrow will be better than today. We pursue thinking that tomorrow will set us free, but it's actually tomorrow that enslaves us. We're enslaved to it. Every decision we make, everything we do, is in light of that pursuit. And this happened to Gomer. She thought when she got it, she would finally be free, but what we'll see is that it actually put her chains. Here's the other thing that sin means for us. Not only are we divided in our minds, not only do we chase after things that hurt us and enslave us, but we also lose our very sense of self. We lose who we are, our identity. In Hosea chapter 1, it goes on to tell the story about Hosea and Gomer and their three children. And it seems to indicate in the text that their first child was Hosea and Gomer's child together. But it's very clear that the next two children were born uh, out of this adulterous relationship, or out of the prostitution that she was in, and we know this because Hosea names them things that are very significant. And whether Hosea actually named them this, or whether this is just a prophetic act that he wrote down, he has a daughter and he names her Lo Ruhamah, which means not loved. And then he has a son, and he names him Lo. God says, name him Lo Ami, which means not my people. Verse nine: For Israel is not my people and I'm not their god. And what's happening here is God saying, here's what sin has done to Israel. They're at the risk of losing their very identity as being my people and me being their god. And you know, many years later Jesus walks the earth and he gave a really famous teaching. It's recorded in Mark chapter 8 verse 36 where he said this. He says, what is a prophet a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul or lose his life? Jesus, when he spoke the word soul, he chose the Greek word psyche, not bios. Bios means life, but psyche means sense of self. And here's what Jesus was saying. In your pursuit of things, you're actually going to lose yourself you're gonna lose your sense of who you are and who you were created to be because you and I were created to be fully human, to bear God's image, to be God's people. But here's the tr- here's the thing, you become what you chase after. Whatever you want the most, whatever you love the most, wherever the attention of your mind and the affections of your heart, wherever that drifts all the time, whether it's a better job, a better home, a better relationship, a better spouse, whatever that thing is that you look to and that you hope for, you become that very thing. You turn into that thing. You don't know who you are apart from that thing. You have no identity apart from the thing that you you're chasing after and that's the power of sin it's not just the bad things we do it's actually shapes who we become earlier this week i was watching an interview online between mike tyson one of the greatest boxers in the you know in our history really and dan Lebertard, who's a sports journalist if you got time watch this interview it's one of the most gripping conversations i've ever seen as mike tyson very honestly opens up about what fame did to him and what popularity did to him. If you're familiar with his career, he was a tremendously gifted young boxer who rose to become the world champion, and then things just began to fall apart for him. There were so many things he said in that interview that were compelling, but this is the quote that he said that I wanted to share with you this morning. Keeping in mind that whatever we chase after enslaves us, and we lose ourselves in the process. He said, the worst I've ever felt in my life was the most successful I've ever been. He looked back in his life and he said, The worst I've ever felt was at the top of my career. And he went on to explain that he was torn about who he had become and what it had got for him. And that he couldn't stop being who he had become because it had got this world for him that he loved and that he craved, and he didn't even, he actually loved, hated it, he loved it, but he hated it too, because he knew that it was destroying him, and he went on to say, I I wanted to change, but he couldn't let go of that version of himself, because that's what he had built his whole life around, since he was a kid, he had people saying, you're gonna be a great boxer, he had one coach that believed him, and even after the coach died, he became the world champion, said, I couldn't let him down, I couldn't disappoint him, he became a slave to becoming a world champion, then he became a world champion, and he was more miserable than ever, and this is what sin does to us, it divides our hearts, It causes us to chase after things that enslave us, and ultimately it causes us to lose our very sense of self. And lastly this morning, we've seen what sin means to God. We've seen what sin means for us. What does Jesus mean for us? Hosea chapter 3, God comes back to Hosea, verse 1, the Lord said to me, go and love your wife again. Even though she commits adultery with another lover, This will illustrate that the Lord still loves Israel, even though the people have turned to other gods and love to worship them. And Hosea says, so I bought her back with 15 pieces of silver and five bushels of barley and a measure of wine, which biblical scholars say it's the equivalent of 30 pieces of silver. Hosea walked into a sex slave market and bought her back what does Jesus mean for us? It means redemption. I want you to try to picture this scene. Gomer, she thought that she was going to find love out there. She thought she was going to find acceptance. and She went down this path, many different relationships, ended up in prostitution. And because of how much he paid for her, we tend to believe that she was a sex slave at that point, a modern version of a sex slave, because 30 pieces of silver was basically what a person a slave was worth back then. And they would line them up in these markets and they would stand them up on, 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 on pedestals and, and, and most likely she's standing there unclothed and it's an auction. It's a human auction. And men are there bidding on her, making comments about her. And I'm sure her head is down and her head is hanging in shame and, and it's the worst. She's thinking, how did I get here? How did I get here? She hears all these comments and all these voices. And then I picture in the midst of all that, she hears a voice that she recognizes that's Hosea's voice. And Hosea, he walks into that scene and he looks at her and he says, he bids for her and he says, I'll buy her back. She broke my heart. She broke her promises. She broke our relationship. She's been unfaithful. But because this is how the Lord loves Israel, this is how I'm gonna love my wife. He walks in that scene, he says, 30 pieces of silver, and she's sold to him. Now what do we do with this story? Here's, the first, here's what you don't do. You and I, we're not the hero of this story. You're not Hosea. You and I are Gomer. We're Gomer. We're the ones who have broken God's heart. We're the ones who have broken the covenant. And we need a Hosea. And we have one. And we have a true and better Hosea. And his name was Jesus. Here's what Jesus does. Jesus walks into the worst moment of your life. He walks into your shame, into your filth, into your sin, into your disappointment. He walks right in. And he speaks. And he doesn't speak a word of correction, rebuke. He's not there to lecture you. He's not there to make you prove that you're really sorry. He's there to love you. In the most scandalous scene, in the most reckless sort of way, he's there to love us. Jesus is better than Hosea because Hosea came in with 30 pieces of silver for his adulterous wife. But what did Jesus pay to buy us back? It's interesting that it was 30 pieces of silver, isn't it? Because 30 pieces of silver is what Judas was paid to betray Jesus to the religious leaders in the Roman government. Jesus walked in and he didn't just say, Here's the money for that person, I'll pay. Here's what he said I'll take, the, I'll take her place. The faithful groom walks in on the unfaithful bride in the market. Jesus says, I'll take her place. I will hang naked. I'll take the abuse, I'll take the mocking. I'll take the cross. And this is what Jesus did to buy us back. He buys us back. He takes our place. But there's one more wonderful thing Jesus does. He unites us to himself. Remember we read earlier from Ephesians that he has united us with himself? That's why this marriage metaphor matters so much. What do we say at weddings? The two have become one. And when we are in Christ, it's like the two have become one. Our identity that we've been searching for out there, it's now found in Christ. And now we belong to him, and we're his people. And all of, we're with him, we're in him on the cross, we're in him as he's buried. We're with him as he rises from the dead so that we, he lived the life we should have lived. He died the death that we should have died. And when he raised from the dead, that meant that you and I have power and we have victory. Because the same spirit of God that raised Christ from the dead and now dwells in you this morning. That's the power of what Jesus means for us. We're united to him. Once far away, now brought near. Just listen to these verses from Hosea 2. If you want, close your eyes. Listen to what God says about Israel. Verse 14. But then I will win her back once again. God never gave up on his people. He doesn't give up on you. I will lead her into the desert and I will speak tenderly to her there. I'll return her vineyards to her. Everything she's lost, I'm going to restore. I'm going to transform the valley of trouble into a gateway of hope. She will give herself to me there as she did long ago when she was young, when I freed her from her captivity in Egypt. When that day comes, says the Lord, you will call me my husband instead of my master or some translations say, my Baal. In verse 19 and 20, I will make you my wife forever, showing you righteous and justice, unfailing love and compassion. I will be faithful to you and make you mine, and you will finally know me as the Lord. This is the Spirit's promise to you this morning that someday he will make you his forever. He's revealing his righteousness, his justice, his unfailing love, and his compassion for you. And it's his faithfulness. It's his faithfulness that makes us his and makes him ours. This past week, I read a book called Mission of a Lifetime by a journalist named Basil Hero. And it's a story about the men who orbited the moon or walked on the moon he decided he wanted to talk to every single one of them before they passed. Many of them had already passed. I think when he wrote the book, there was maybe 10 or 12 men still alive, astronauts, who either orbited the moon or walked on the moon. And he wanted to interview them and ask them about their experience and how it changed their lives. And I thought one of the more interesting um, stories was about Apollo 8. If you're familiar with NASA and the programs, Apollo 8, that was the trip that we got this uh, remarkable picture from that's called Earthrise. And what happened was the astronauts went to orbit the moon. And as they came around the orbit of the moon, they came around the other side and they looked back and there was earth. And one of the astronauts said this, because uh, one of the interesting things in the book is how much they prepare and train. They, they prepare for every possible outcome. Nothing is left to chance. That's how they got through some of the chaos and, and dangers they got through. They prepare for every single thing in their simulators. And he, one of the astronauts said this, we were prepared for everything except this took our breath away. No one had seen earth from this view before. And they took this picture and people saw it. It changed people's lives. It made people think differently about our place in the universe. William Anders, one of the astronauts, said this. He said, we went on Apollo 8 to explore the moon, but instead we discovered the earth. I think of Gomer, you know, running away from her home, running away from her first love, going to try to explore everything else that's out there. At the end of the story, what she discovered was that everything she ever wanted and needed was already at home. She hadn't seen it for what it was. Maybe you're here this morning and you've explored lots of different religions, lots of different ways, lots of different uh, paths, lots of different things. I just want you to know that the Father is calling you home faithfully. One of the other astronauts, Frank Borman, said this, He said, when we saw it, all three of us were awed by it immediately. It was the only thing in the universe that had any color. And I was totally taken by it. I think there's something true about Jesus that when you see Jesus for who he really is, the beauty of Christ the work of Christ, the life of Christ, the death of Christ, the teachings of Christ, the ethics of Christ, the person of Christ. When you see him for who he really is, there'll be a sense in your heart where you look at him and go, that is the only thing in the whole universe that has any color. Everything else is okay. But when you see him, it puts everything else in perspective. You see his beauty, his value, his worth. My prayer for us is that the Holy Spirit would reveal Jesus to our hearts in a way that we see him for who he is, for what he's done. A faithful covenant-keeping God who never gave up on his people, who never gives up on his people. And like Hosea walked into Gomer's worst moments to bring her life and hope and redemption, Jesus does the same for us this morning. Let's pray together.